This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, like a lot of people, we here at Radio Parallax are really excited at the prospect of finally getting a chance to see that Mars helicopter take off. Getting it right is something that's worth waiting for, much, much like this radio program. Yes, we have to admit, we've not been putting out weekly broadcasts as we've done for most of the last 20 years, but we are certainly doing what we can to keep our hand in. A couple of weeks ago, we had a show where we just kind of talked about stuff like we usually do, things that are in the news. We improved that on our last program by having a scintillating guest. In that case, it was Craig Unger talking about his book, American Compromat. That is, we think it fair to say, one hell of an interesting book. We hope, dear listener, you've had a chance to investigate it. I was surprised in reading it that there's, there's a Jeffrey Epstein connection to Russia's uh, attempts to go out and get compromising material on people to help turn them into Russian assets. The book does note that Mr. Epstein's death is suspicious, and we did say that we would like to bring on Dr. Cyril Wecht, who has offered an opinion that Epstein was most certainly the victim of foul play. Dr. Wecht, we think, is a great American, and he has agreed to to speak with us in the next few weeks about Epstein and about a book he's very high on. That book is Josiah Thompson's sequel to his 1967 classic, Last Second in Dallas. Its subheadline was that it was a micro-study of the JFK assassination. It is certainly one of the best-regarded books in the entire genre. And, of course, libraries could be filled with books written about what happened to JFK. And I have to admit, I, I find it irresistible at this point to not mention a wisecrack made by a person I know who is who's one such researcher. Her comment was, yeah, the JFK research community. That pretty much consists of spooks, kooks, boars, and whores, which uh, I have to admit I got quite a laugh at. And I certainly would concur with that opinion that a lot of people in that research community consist of spooks, kooks, whores, and boars. But it also consists of some pretty damn good investigative journalists. I've had the pleasure of knowing... Josiah Thompson for many years and know him to be an excellent, logical, methodical writer who knows how to probe a crime, which I guess you would expect given his history. He started out as a professor of philosophy at Haverford University, after which he stumbled almost by accident into Life Magazine's investigation of what happened to JFK in 1966, which led to his milestone book in 67. After that, he became a private eye, which he remains to this day. Now, if you know any former philosophy professors that have become private eyes, well, I guess I'd like to shake your hand because I don't know any others. But the punchline here is that we're going to have Josiah Thompson on this program in the next few weeks, I hope, if all goes well. And I can assure you that is going to be one interesting interview. I forward promoted a possible interview with Lou Cannon uh, a couple shows ago, and I'm sorry to report that. I have not reread Lou Cannon's book nor reached out to contact him, although he remains a fixture in the Sacramento area. 
still employed, I believe, by StateNet, a company that keeps track of legislation across the U.S. of A. So I guess I need to apologize to you, dear listener, for my sloth in this area, but I, I will try to do better. And I would repeat that for Lou Cannon, just, just in case he's listening. Mr. Cannon, I, I, I'll try to do better. But, uh, you know, we need to do a show every so often, even if I don't have a guest like Craig Unger, just to kind of keep our hand in. Wouldn't you agree, Mr. McMillan? There is certainly no shortage of interesting things to talk about. But before we reach into this ever-growing pile of articles we may want to uh, remark upon, I think we'll start out the show by doing our perennial favorite, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because those are stacking up too. We often rely upon The Week magazine for these items, and we will do that today, because like I say, we've got a backlog here. In fact, i got four separate issues of the magazine here, from which I shall excerpt. Let's start with one from a couple weeks back, which time it was noted that it was a good week that week for chutzpah, after lawyer Sidney Powell argued that Dominion Voting System's $1.3 billion defamation lawsuit against her should be dismissed. Because, quote, no reasonable person could believe her claims about rigged voting were truly statements of fact. It was, on the other hand, a bad week one week last month for wholesomeness. The news that the Boy Scouts of America have begun selling off their collection of original paintings by iconic artist Norman Rockwell to help raise $300 million to settle thousands of sexual abuse lawsuits. The 60-plus Rockwells on sale included such titles as The Right Way, On My Honor, and I Will Do My Best. And in that same week, a month ago, we'd have to say it was an ugly week for California department stores anyway, with the news that California lawmakers are considering a bill that would ban department stores from having boys' and girls' toy sections. Many retailers have already removed sex-based signage but the proposed bill would make it illegal to separate dolls, toy guns, etc. by perceived gender appeal, said Assemblywoman Christina Garcia. I think we have kids who are figuring out their identities. We want to give them that safe space to do that. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Personally, I'd call that... And I have to say, it reminds me of a little small anecdote here friend of mine who was extremely progressive person, very, very liberal in that traditional sense of the word. Although actually there's many traditional senses of that word. I guess what I mean here is a person on the left in contemporary America. She had a friend that was, by her standards, much more liberal and I guess you'd say progressive than she. This person was determined that her child, who was at, at that time about a two and a half year old boy, and yes, we're going we're gonna to go with a given gender. Her young boy was denied any sort of toys which one might associate with violence. No bows and arrows, no toy machine guns, no toy swords, etc. So one day during breakfast, 
this friend of my friend looked over with horror to observe what her child had done. He had taken the piece of toast provided him for his morning breakfast and bitten it into the shape of a pistol. But continuing along, we would note that it was a good week a couple weeks back for, I guess what you'd call zero interest financing with the news that Eric Warren, age 50, a Texas citizen, got sentenced to 20 years in jail for borrowing a loaner vehicle from a BMW dealership, then using the car for an armed bank robbery and returning to the dealer to buy the car with the cash. Of course, when he gets out, I I bet he can find employment at Goldman Sachs. All right. During that same week, it was it was a bad week, we'd have to say, for thinking outside the box. After Tesla Inc. informed the Securities and Exchange Commission that CEO Elon Musk now prefers his new title, Techno King, to which I would add this is a term that Radio Parallax now intends to use on a regular basis to describe the people that run Silicon Valley. They're Techno Kings. And the people that assist them in what they do, well, we're going to call them techno-royalty. And in the first week of this month, it turned out it was an ugly week for going maskless with the news that the dining room and beach club at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort have been shut down following a COVID-19 outbreak among the staff. Were they actually going maskless? Were they actually going maskless? I bet they were. The Donald hates seeing people around him wearing masks. All right, let's do at least one more round. It was a good week a couple weeks back for Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was named in a poll of British adults the most suitable public figure to lead humanity in the event of an alien invasion. (laughs) Tweeted the 73-year-old action star and former California governor, I'm ready to serve. By the way, that poorly affected Austrian accent that I just did, well, I don't intend to apologize for it. I realize I'm not Austrian, and that there is the possibility that I I could have offended an Austrian, but unlike Hank Azaria, I do not intend to apologize. Mr. Azaria, on the other hand, has now apologized to any Indian person that he might have offended by his portrayal of the Apu character on The Simpsons. And by the way, a friend of mine posted a rather pungent note on, on his Facebook page about that episode. His perspective seemed to be, well, it's about time. A major part of the objection appeared to be that Hank Azaria was affecting an Indian accent, although he's not, in fact, of Indian extraction. All I want to say is that, you know, Peter Sellers wasn't French either, but I think it's it's okay to laugh at his Inspector Clouseau character and its funny way of speaking. It's, It's a comedy. The Simpsons is not a program that is dedicated to furthering the Brotherhood of Man. It is a raucous and irreverent comedy program. A comedy cartoon, no less. Anyway, I'm guessing we'll probably have more to say about that in the future, but, but, but for now, let's, let's stop. And note that, well, we think it was an ugly week two weeks ago for, I, I guess I would say, well-meaning efforts to facilitate diversity with the news that a Minnesota dinner theater company has canceled its production of Cinderella because the cast was too white. Apparently, the Chanhassen Dinner Theater, in a, quote, anti-racism update, said they did not cancel Cinderella because of content, 
but because our original casting didn't go far enough in our commitment to diversity, equality, and inclusion. All right, and moving away from things that are good, bad, or ugly, and maybe coming under the headline of, in other news, we have this item. The House of Representatives in Alabama has voted to relax, relax the state's ban on yoga in schools, which was instituted because Christians saw it as a Hindu religious practice. Democratic Democratic Representative Jeremy Gray persuaded his Republican colleagues... Let me just say that one again. Democratic Representative Jeremy Gray persuaded his Republican colleagues that the practice of stretching and breathing has health benefits. Said Gray, a lot of their wives actually do yoga. So yeah, I guess they've relaxed the ban on yoga. However, students and teachers will still be forbidden from using the Hindu greeting, Namaste. No, we don't know whether any of the Republican legislators down there in Alabama think that namaste will lead to Satan worship or pedophilia. But hey, this is a step in the right direction, hey? And another item from the In the News section, which is considerably less amusing than what we've been just going through, we have the fact that cell phone records have revealed that a person associated with the Trump White House was, in fact, in contact with members of the far-right group Proud Boys in the days leading up to the January 6th Capitol insurrection. More than a dozen Proud Boys have been charged in the riot. A law enforcement official who described the context in the New York Times did not identify the parties. Investigators said they had no evidence that members of Congress were in contact with extremists during the riot. However, phone records do indicate that lawmakers who appeared at the rally preceding the riot did have contact with far-right extremists in the days leading up to January 6th. And you can bet your ass that's a story we're going to continue to follow. Can I say that? Hell yeah. All right, let's, let's talk about an item that appeared in The Economist uh, last month, an article about, um, well, it was described as a tarnished silver screen. The magazine reported on a look back at the 1915 film The Birth of a Nation. It was originally called The Klansman after the book that inspired it. And in case you're not aware, it was overtly racist. It had a pro-Southern take on the Civil War and the Reconstruction aftermath. It painted African Americans, who were played by whites in blackface, as lecherous brutes. And it lauded a lynching by the Ku Klux Klan. I was not aware of the fact that the KKK began burning crosses on lawns and wearing white hoods only after those symbols appeared in the film. Actually, that's what the magazine says. I'm not positive that's correct. But certainly that, I think that pointy-headed costume that we associate with the KKK, I think got firmly entrenched with Birth of a Nation. The magazine reported on a study from Harvard University that took a look at the film's impact in America. They studied how rates of racist violence changed when the roadshow taking the picture around the country came to town. On average, lynchings in a county rose fivefold the month after it arrived. It seems pretty clear that the film's effect on white supremacist activity turned out to be pretty durable. So yes, we here at Radio Parallax recognize that uh, that art can, you know, push things into gray areas sometimes. But we think there's a long, long way to go from the KKK to Apu. Anyway, COVID is still with us. 
We've got to talk about it a bit. America continues to try and pull out of the catastrophe of the Trump mishandling of the pandemic here in America. And progress is being made. And by the way, although we've been very skeptical on this program in the past about the people who wanted to take down statues of like U.S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln, or not name a school after Barack Obama, et cetera, et cetera, I don't really, we don't really have a problem with some of these removals of Confederate statues and other symbols. Apparently last year, about 160 public Confederate statues and symbols were taken down and moved out of public spaces. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, about 700 Confederate monuments remain across the U.S., and I'm not sure we need those. Pretty much every example of a Confederate uh, statue or monument is, is pretty much thumbing its nose at the results of the Civil War, taking the position that somehow the South, uh, you know, was a noble cause. We'd have, to say that the maintain, we'd have to say that the maintenance of human slavery was not a noble cause, and that was the entire reason for the Civil War. It was not about, quote-unquote, states' rights. Well, except for the fact that the states' right they were fighting for was the right to retain slaves. Anyway, enough said. Apparently at this point in time, about 13% of the public has been fully vaccinated, and it's being reported that 25% of the population has received at least one shot. Personally, I'm quite curious to know what number among that 25% represent people that got a shot after having had COVID. Yours truly falls into that category. And uh, I made made a decision in the wake of the data showing that one shot seemed to give. And I don't mind sharing with you uh, the decision I made as a medical professional to forsake the second shot because... Studies out there are showing that if you've had COVID and you receive one vaccination, you have a response in your immune system that is at least as robust as someone who got two of the vaccines. In fact, some of the studies show that people who received a vaccination after having had COVID had an antibody response 10 to 20 times higher after the first jab than those who had not had the disease. In some cases, the response exceeded the degree of protection provided by two shots. The studies done also suggested that those who had previously been infected, as opposed to those who were not, were more likely to have side effects from that first shot, like temporary fatigue or fever. And I'm here to tell you that, (laughs) yeah, temporary fatigue certainly came along with me getting the shot. It, it was actually, in my particular case, worse than the virus itself, although fortunately it only lasted one day. The health authorities in the Bay Area suggested that I get backup shot one month later. I, I suggested to them that it might make more sense if I got it several months down the line. And they told me that if you don't get it within four weeks, you're going to have to get two shots to be considered vaccinated. This is a kind of unfortunate one-size-fits-all approach. I understand how they're trying to... Uh, to keep it simple, they're trying to get people from being stupid. They're trying to prevent people from doing stupid things. A uh, new scientist writing about this in answer to the question where someone asked, am I safe once I've had one dose of a corona vaccine? The magazine answered, the short answer is no. Don't for a moment imagine you are safe. That would be a horrible thing to do. They were quoting Danny Altman of Imperial College London, who said, you absolutely can't remotely modify your behavior until well after your second dose. That is certainly a reasonable approach to take, but you know, in reality, I'm certain a lot of people had a sufficient response after one vaccination. They just don't want anyone to get 
you know, lax about it and figure, oh, I've got one shot, I'm covered. That, that would be a mistake. But again, that's if you've never had COVID. It's a difficult thing about this, this novel coronavirus that we're, we're learning so much. We, we, just, we just don't have the answers to a lot of the questions. And they've been trying to gauge the immune response to people that have had COVID, and, and they, they seem to find that it's all over the map. And of course, that means that if you get a shot as a booster, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to even that out. Dr. Jennifer Gomerman, immunologist at the University of Toronto, was quoted by the New York Times as saying, the vaccines even the playing field. So anyone who has recovered from COVID produces enough antibodies to protect against the virus. Anyway, yes, progress is being made. A lot of controversy right now. People are arguing right and left and center about, you know, which vaccine you ought to take. And I think the wisest answer to uh, this debate is to tell people that, you know, if you have a vaccine available to you, take it. There's much talk that uh, virus that there's much talk that vaccines are going to be available to everyone in the country, just about now or in the immediate future. We shall see. There have been distribution problems. You know, a positive note does have to be sounded about these these vaccines. The previous world record for the fastest vaccine brought online was four years. This pandemic uh, changed everything. The fact that around the world people are being vaccinated and achieving immunity to the uh, COVID-19 virus is, 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 is really quite amazing. And uh, despite his fans claiming that Donald Trump made this all possible, well, that's not true. Any more than the other 29,999 things that he said in the four years he was president that turned out to be false, or at least partly false. And we reported on this program a few weeks ago that uh, Dr. Deborah Burks, who headed the coronavirus task force as its coordinator under Trump, told CNN that most deaths in the U.S. could have been prevented, which is absolutely true. But we do have to add that, well, it, it could have been even worse. The Washington Post released an article by Frida Giddes took a look at this about five weeks ago, and, and noted that, um, well, Trump might not have been the worst leader of the pandemic because others arguably botched the crisis even worse than he did. Noted the Post, is hard to top the response of Nicaragua's near-eternal president Daniel Ortega and his wife, who responded to news of the pandemic by calling people into the streets for a festival they called Love in the Time of COVID-19, which the Post described as a perversely fitting allusion to the world of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, whose novels seamlessly blended facts and hallucination. Ortega's reckless move horrified human rights activists and scientists alike. Noted the post, that's hard to top, but not impossible. There's Jair Bolsonaro, president of Brazil, where the healthcare system stands on the verge of collapse as the unchecked spread of the virus has spawned variants now threatening other struggling countries. Bolsonaro, as you may recall, echoed Trump's claims about hydroxychloroquine, squandered emergency pandemic funds on that useless treatment, fired health ministers for refusing to go along with his COVID-19 denials, and claimed Brazilians might be immune to, quote, the little flu, unquote, is what he called it, because they swim in sewage and nothing happens to them. Bolsonaro, who himself became infected, called on Brazilians to protest antivirus measures, and he joined them in the streets. Few people wore masks as he gleefully shook hands, sometimes after coughing into his own. 
Another president who deserves uh, very little credit, who caught the virus also while playing it down, is none other than Mexico's Andres Manuel López Obrador. Early on, he advised Mexicans to, quote, live life as usual, unquote. Even as he became infected, he rejected requests to wear a mask. He said he'll wear one when corruption is eradicated in Mexico. Well, that, that's, that's pretty much the same as when hell freezes over. It's also worth noting that at the end of March, Mexican authorities quietly released a report showing the real count is 60% higher than the official figure, putting Mexico neck and neck with Brazil for the world's second highest pandemic death toll behind the United States. And you know, it's pretty bad when you, when you have to compare Donald Trump and the presidents of Brazil and Mexico to Belarus's dictator, Alexander Lukashenko. He described the COVID pandemic as nothing more than a psychosis, and he prescribed vodka and saunas to prevent it. And Turkmenistan, another post-Soviet dictatorship, set a new low, perhaps in this whole thing, by banning, banning mask wearing and any discussion of the pandemic. The use of the word coronavirus has reportedly been outlawed in media or health information materials. Turkmenistan still claims it hasn't had any coronavirus cases, a claim which no one believes. And there's Cambodia, where Prime Minister Hun Sen, who has had power since 1985, making one of the world's longest ruling heads of government. Well, his first move was denial. He then welcomed cruise ship passengers who were shunned by other countries for fear of the pandemic. And gradually his response turned to repression, banning criticism and arresting those who complained. Then, using the emergency to tighten the regime's grip. And, and finishing up the It Could Be Worse a summary, we have President John Mugafuli of Tanzania, who also dis dismissed talk of a global emergency. He told people not to bother with masks or vaccines, claiming that three days of prayer eradicated the virus in Tanzania. Oh, by the way, Magafuli died at the end of March. Authorities say he died from heart complications, but members of the opposition say they have it on good authority that he died of COVID-19. Anyway, on that not exactly happy note, we must nevertheless take a break. Let's do so. You're listening to Radio Parallax. More shortly. Don't go away.